ladies and gentlemen, and thank you for tuning in. You are listening to Fiscamall, your weekly consistency check on America's political and legal file systems. I'm your host, T. Greg Doucette, here in studio with Mike the Sound Guy, and we are broadcasting to you from the heart of downtown Durham, North Carolina. Folks, you could probably tell from the episode title that this is What the Fisk Volume 4, which means that I'm on vacation. So I'm obviously not on vacation right now. We're recording this podcast. Uh, But I mentioned a few weeks back that we had a vacation that my girlfriend and I had planned back in like May, uh, set for the beginning of September down in Florida. And then Hurricane Irma kind of scrambled all of those plans. Well, we finally, at the last minute, were able to get it rescheduled without costing an arm and a leg to redo everything. Uh, So by the time you listen to this, I will probably be on a plane on my way back. Uh, So we're leaving on Thursday morning. Uh, And then, well, I've already left, I guess, by the time you get this. But anyhow, long story short, I wanted to make sure you still had an episode on Monday so you guys know that every Monday there's going to be something from me. Uh, So this is What the Fisk Volume 4. It basically, as with other podcasts, covers random questions that I happen to get over the course of any given week. I stockpile them all in a little notepad, and as time permits where I don't have enough criminal justice fuckery to talk about, uh, which rarely ever happens, uh, I grab a handful of them and we put them into the show. So before we get into this week's questions, because the the first one I'm going to tell you is a doozy. There's a lot of law stuff going in with it. Uh, Make sure to join the conversation online. So we are on Twitter at Fiskamall. That is at F-S-C-K-E-M-A-L-L. You can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Greg, G-R-E-G underscore Doucette, D-O-U-C-E-T-T-E. Leave us a comment on our website, Fiskamall.com. And you can join our Patreon community, patreon.com slash Fisk. Uh, if you happen to be one of our patrons, you actually got a patron-only episode on Thursday as I was getting ready to leave for vacation talking about the uh, burdens of proof and what those mean. So getting into this week's questions, the first one is from James. I've mentioned James before in one of my uh, episodes. He is at Mr. Hankins Opus on Twitter. And he says, quote, in your opinion... What are the legal and political ramifications of this? And included in his tweet is a New York Times story regarding affirmative action in higher education and discrimination against Asians, uh, specifically a lawsuit that's been filed against Harvard by several Asian students, arguing that the percentage enrollment by whites, blacks, uh, Hispanic folks, are such that Asians are clearly being discriminated against. That's the gist of the lawsuit. And it's a complex question because the case law and not just the case law, but just like the political law, how the country has dealt with other races is complex and it's a mess, you know? So go back to various points in time in American history Asians have been discriminated against fairly consistently. Not necessarily as bad as African Americans, of course, or Native Americans who were exterminated when we got here. African Americans we brought over as slaves. Many of them were exterminated too. Um, But Asian Americans were still treated as not white. So, for example, back during the days that the Transcontinental Railroad was being created, you would often hear a comment about someone not having a Chinaman's chance. And that was because a lot of Chinese immigrants worked on the railroads and conditions were so bad that a lot of them died. 
Uh, of course, back during World War II, you had the issue with the Japanese, and we actually created full-blown internment camps where people were forced into uh, these particular spots because they were all, as a group, universally suspected of being potential spies for the Japanese Empire. Uh, one of the top five worst Supreme Court decisions ever, uh, Korematsu versus United States, actually upheld this idea that you could detain American citizens in internment camps and it was perfectly legal. Uh, so there's, as a, as a precursor to the legal discussion, what I'm going to do is I'm going to give you some of the highlight cases over the course of the past hundred years uh, covering how we deal with racial differences. But just bear in mind that Asians have been historically discriminated against. Uh, so go back to the Civil War. Civil War, of course, ends in 1865. So at this point, the Emancipation Proclamation has happened. You have a lot of former slaves that are now freed men, at least on paper. Uh, you have freedmen's bureaus, sharecroppers, all of that stuff. And your historically black colleges and universities start to crop up because these folks need an education. So, for example, Howard University, if we have any listeners from Howard, forgive me if I get this date wrong, but I'm pretty sure Howard opened in like 1867-ish. Um, so that is the starting point. You have newly freed slaves. They need to be educated. And essentially, uh, school set up for racial minorities is how that takes place. Now, they still admitted whites. Um, Howard was integrated from the very first day it was created. The university was founded in part by one of the Union generals, and his daughter was one of the first students. Um, but just know that these are intended to be colleges and universities primarily for educating the recently freed slaves. Well, fast forward to 1896, and you have the Supreme Court case of Plessy versus Ferguson. And this involved uh, treatment in rail cars and whether or not you had to integrate rail service. And what the court ruled in that case was essentially the uh, baseline for separate but equal. This idea that public accommodations, so not just uh, rail cars, but hotels and anything of that nature that was open to the public, as long as they are separate but equal in quality, that was fine. That was perfectly cool with the 14th Amendment. It didn't violate the Equal Protection Clause. That was all no big deal. So as long as it's equal, the fact that it's separate doesn't matter. So fast forward about 40 years to 1938, you've now got this entire infrastructure across the South and in many other states that weren't the South, where you have stuff for whites, stuff for blacks, and if you were any other racial minority, Hispanic, Native American, Asian, whatever, you fell into the black camp. You were not white. You had white was the baseline standard. Everything else was considered not white and went from there. Well, in the case of Missouri, X-Rail Gaines versus Canada, this involved the capacity of historically black colleges and universities and their professional schools or lack thereof. And what the court ruled in that case was that if you're going to have white graduate schools, you have to also have black graduate schools providing the same courses of study. And if you don't do that, you have to admit racial minorities to the white schools. Well, of course, that prompted politicians all over the country to promptly shit their pants. 
and to give you an idea of how quickly that pants shitting took place, uh, my alma mater, the North Carolina Central University School of Law, was founded in 1939, less than a year after uh, the X-Rail Gaines v. Canada decision took place. Um, so that became kind of an impetus for state governments to start offering these different services to their state-run HBCUs. But of course, this was all kind of a joke, because if you look at some of the court cases dealing with the history of Central, for example, uh, you had the UNC Law School, where they had multiple faculty members, they had new case books all the time, they had a decent building, and that sort of thing. And then you compared it with Central, which I, you know, supposedly was separate but equal. Uh, the law library at Central was stocked with the books that UNC Chapel Hill's law school would throw away. So if Chapel Hill or Duke, uh, if they weren't getting rid of their books, Central was stuck with what they've, you know, what scraps they'd given up before. The faculty weren't full-time dedicated Central faculty. They were faculty at UNC or at Duke who would come teach at Central part-time. The dean of the law school was actually a UNC School of Law professor who agreed to be the dean at Central as well. So what you started to see happen is court cases where that was being challenged. So you had the case Sweat versus Painter in 1950, so about 11 years after Central's Law School was created. Uh, Sweat v. Painter was a case where the plaintiff was arguing that the graduate programs were truly separate, but they weren't equal in quality. Uh, and then, So Sweat v. Painter was a United States Supreme Court case, and then you had in here locally McKissick versus Carmichael, which went all the way up to the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals, uh, that one dealt with North Carolina Central University School of Law and the comparisons to UNC Chapel Hill School of Law. And what the Fourth Circuit said in that case was that UNC law had to integrate. They had to allow racial minorities because the General Assembly was deliberately keeping central substandard. They were not trying to do the equal part. They were focusing entirely on the separate part. So then go forward three years and you get to Brown versus Board of Education, which is actually five separate cases that were consolidated for one particular decision. And the, the history of Brown v. Board is interesting because this is, a, this is a series of cases where the NAACP worked to find ideal plaintiff families. So it was families that were married, the dads had stable jobs, the moms were housewives, the kids performed you know, as well as the kids could, and they were really trying to find an ideal case to end the doctrine of separate but equal. And that's what Brown v. Board ultimately did. Uh, it ended it in education only. What the Supreme Court said was that separate but equal in education had no place. Didn't reach out anywhere else in public accommodations, but at the very least handled it for K-12 through education. Uh, so that was in 54. And then once that decision was handed down, there was a lot of public uproar about it. Uh, if any of you have seen the... I can't remember the name of it. So PBS has a documentary on the Supreme Court. It's multiple DVDs. Absolutely fantastic. Uh, but there's a section on Brown v. Board of Education and the civil rights era, and white people flipped their shit. I mean, they completely lost it, the idea of having black folks in schools with them. Uh, so then a year later, you have Brown versus Board of Education 2, 
Uh, and this was basically the Supreme Court trying to offer guidance to the states and localities on how to implement integration or desegregation more accurately. And in that p- opinion, the Supreme Court said that had to be done, quote, with all deliberate speed. So, of course, deliberate means slow, unhurried, methodical. So coupling that with speed, no one knew what the hell that meant. Uh, In practice, what that meant was the southern states didn't have to desegregate. You had multiple states where nothing really changed, even though the law of the land officially was different. So go forward to 1971 in Swan v. Charlotte. This was a case where... The uh, Charlotte-Mecklenburg school system was going to use forced busing to bus kids. They were busing black kids to white schools as a way of forcing desegregation. And what the Supreme Court said back then is that that was fine. That was one of the only ways you could really break this practice by elected officials of ignoring what the court had ordered in Brown v. Board. So then... Next in the chain of cases where this is going on, you had the Regents of the University of California versus, I don't know if it's Bakke or Bakke, it's B-A-K-K-E, I'm not sure how to pronounce his name, but this was in 1978. And essentially, uh, Bakke is what I'm going to call him, if I'm screwing up his name, I apologize. Uh, He's a 35-year-old guy, and he applied to the medical school at the University of California at Davis. He'd applied twice, he was rejected both times. And the school had a set-aside program where 16 minority applicants, not a specific race, but just any non-white race, as long as they were qualified and they were one of those 16, they were admitted. And Bakke's metrics, his GPA, his test scores, whatever else, were higher than all 16 of the admittees in the set-aside program. So he filed suit and he argued that the University of California system violated the Equal Protection Clause of the 14th Amendment and also violated the Civil Rights Act of 1964. So when this case reached the Supreme Court, the end result was very split. You had four justices who said it violated the Civil Rights Act. You had four justices who said it was totally fine. And then you had Justice Lewis Powell, who joined both sides. What he said was that it violated the 14th Amendment, violated the Equal Protection Clause by having a set-aside program. But if it were done differently, the University of California at Davis could use race as one factor among many as part of its um, admission process. So that became the central case that most higher education institutions used for determining admission, this idea that race was one factor among many. And that was really how implementation went on for the better part of 20 years. Well, fast forward to 1995, a non-education case, uh, Adirond Construction versus Pena. And this involved a government program where they were setting aside highway construction money with the U.S. Department of Transportation for contractors who were racial minorities because they were presuming that being a racial minority meant that you had had some legacy of discrimination in your past and that you you were disadvantaged relative to other people. So this prompted a lawsuit. And the question that was before the court was whether or not racial preferences of any kind were automatically suspect. And the Supreme Court, in a 5-4 decision, said yes, 
that all racial classifications didn't matter whether they were imposed by the federal government or a state government or a local government doesn't make any difference. They're subject to what we call strict scrutiny review. We've talked about that in prior episodes where strict scrutiny means that a, a law or a statutory program, it's presumed to be invalid unless it serves a compelling government interest and it's narrowly tailored to achieve that particular interest. So all racial classifications are automatically subject to strict scrutiny. So that's a 1995. This is a watershed case. It's a big deal. Even though it deals with highway construction, it has ramifications for everything. Because now, if you look at, for example, the California versus Bakke decision, there it was one factor among many. Now it's still one factor among many because that hasn't been expressly overturned, but also subject to strict scrutiny. So in local cases, you have this case, Capaccioni versus Charlotte. So we talked earlier about Swan v. Charlotte, which is a United States Supreme Court decision that allowed forced busing to achieve desegregation. Well, Capaccioni v. Charlotte is a Western District of North Carolina case in 1999, and it ended busing. What the court said was that we've had enough busing going on, and let's just go ahead and put an end to it. And then two years later, in Belk versus Charlotte, which is a Fourth Circuit case, uh, they basically affirmed the Capaccioni decision. So it applied then to all school uh, all schools in the Fourth Circuit. So the Fourth Circuit Court of Appeals covers South Carolina, North Carolina, Virginia, and West Virginia, and Maryland. And just as important, a lot of circuit courts will look to their sister circuits. Uh, for guidance on how to decide similar cases. So Belk v. Charlotte was kind of the, the, the st- death knell, if you will, of desegregation efforts. So we're going to cover how that officially died here in a minute. So then two years later, in 2003, you had two different cases dealing with higher education admissions, in part covering uh, the same concepts from Adirond Construction and Belk v. Charlotte. So you had Gratz v. Bollinger and Grutter v. Bollinger. So Gratz dealt with undergraduate admissions at the University of Michigan. And this part of that process, they had a point system where for a certain GPA, you got a certain number of points. For your leadership skills, you got a certain number of points. For race, you could get a certain number of points. And they admitted people based on their points. Uh, so in a six to three decision, the Supreme Court said that that express point system where you're openly giving people points based on their race, that that was you know, basically tantamount to a quota system in a sense. It was not narrowly tailored. It failed strict scrutiny. Well, the same term, the court considered both of these in the same year of decisions. Uh, that same term in Grutter v. Bollinger, that dealt with admission to the University of Michigan's law school. And there, rather than using a point-based system, they used a system where they, what they call holistic admissions, uh, where they basically tried to look at everything. So your LSAT scores, your GPA, your professional experience, all of that stuff. And the court went the other way. So in a 5-4 decision, uh, what the court found was that there was narrowly tailored use of race in admissions to further a compelling interest in obtaining the educational benefits that flow from a diverse student body. Uh, The court said that because the law school does highly individualized reviews of each applicant, no acceptance or rejection is based automatically on any particular variable such as race. 
and this process ensures that all factors that may contribute to diversity are meaningfully considered alongside it. Uh, Justice O'Connor wrote the majority opinion, and she said, quote, in the context of its individualized inquiry into the possible diversity contributions of all applicants, the law school's race-conscious admissions program does not unduly harm non-minority applicants. So this became the new standard. So University of California versus Bakke was the previous landmark case dealing with uh, racial preferences in higher education. So universities tailored their policies to deal with the uh, Supreme Court decision there and trying to make sure that they met that standard. So the uh, Grutter case became the new standard. So you saw folks, a lot of universities were revising their policies, uh, getting rid of any point systems they might have had, expressly stating the benefits they hoped to achieve by having a diverse student body, using these more highly individualized admissions and that sort of thing. So Grutter became the new standard. Then in the K-12 context in 2007, you had the case of Parents Involved in Community Schools, or PICS is their acronym, uh, versus Seattle School District Number 1. And that basically did nationwide what the Capaccioni case started. It officially ended all busing, uh, really all desegregation efforts at all in K-12 education. That's the opinion where Chief Justice Roberts said uh, the way to stop discrimination on the basis of race is to stop discriminating on the basis of race. Uh, it's, a, it's a foolish, naive decision, uh, but, you know, that is what it is. So then the next case in the, in the sequence is Fisher v. Texas in 2013. And Texas, to try and achieve some racial diversity in its universities, they created what this this called 10% plan, where if you are in the top 10% academically in your state, you, you get automatic admission to one of the state schools. Uh, actually, I like that concept a lot. I talked about it back when I was an undergrad. Um, I don't know when it actually got started, but I mean, back in like 1998, 99, when I started at NC State, I was like, hey, we should have this in North Carolina. This would be really nifty. Um, so as part of that, the question was, uh, Fisher was someone who was not in the top 10% of her class. And if you didn't hit the top 10 cutoff, you went into this holistic application review that it considered race as one factor among many. And she sued saying that that was unfair because she should have been admitted, even though she's a white girl and didn't have all the great metrics to be in the top 10%, uh, by considering race, that was still not cool. And the district court said no, the court of appeals said no, uh, and the Supreme Court reversed them, saying that we're not going to make a decision one way or the other yet. Uh, you appeals court and you district court, y'all failed to apply this strict scrutiny analysis. You basically gave too much deference to the University of Texas. Uh, look at it again and be a little bit more serious with it this time. So that, that's known as Fisher 1. So that's in 2013. Uh, Fisher 2 happened in 2016, but before we got there, you had Schuett versus Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action. So that was a 2014 case, and that involved the Michigan uh, – there was a ballot initiative to add an amendment to the Michigan state constitution that prohibited, quote, all sex and race-based preferences in public education, public employment, and public contracting. So part of that was a fallout from the Greta versus Bollinger case. Um, so that ballot initiative took place, 
and this group Coalition to Defend Affirmative Action filed suit saying that it's unconstitutional to prohibit having these types of preferences because now what you've got is, again, majority rule with no check to preserve minority rights because if it's something where you needed to have some form of affirmative action to remedy discrimination, you've now got the white majority saying that that's not possible in Michigan. Well, the Supreme Court said that that particular ballot initiative was fine. So there was a 6-2 to two decision in terms of upholding the uh, ballot initiative, but the actual ruling was very fractured. So Justice Kennedy had an opinion uh, with – it was a three-justice plurality. Uh, Justice Roberts had a concurring opinion. Justice Scalia had a concurring opinion. Justice Breyer had a concurring opinion. Um, and then you had Justice Sotomayor and Ginsburg were the only two in dissent. So the conservative justices plus Breyer made the argument that ultimately all of this goes back to the voters. And it's up to the voters to decide whether or not these programs are appropriate, not the courts. Sotomayor's dissent essentially said, you know, that's easy for you, all of you white guys to say, but if you're in a racial minority, having the white majority decide that you can't even pitch this as an idea – uh, violates equal protection. So that case is sitting out there. That's a 6-2 decision. And then a couple years later, Fisher versus Texas round two happens. So this is after the Court of Appeals has reconsidered the University of Texas's admissions programs based on the ruling in Fisher 1. And in this case, it's a 4-3 to three ruling. So uh, Justice Gorsuch is not on the bench yet because this is um, – this, the Senate is essentially stopping hearings, preventing Merrick Garland, Obama's nominee, from ever getting a hearing and being put on the Supreme Court. Uh, Gorsuch doesn't join until 2017. And Elena Kagan recuses herself because she had been Obama's solicitor general, the person that argues in front of the Supreme Court, uh, had dealt with this particular case in Fisher 1, so she decided not to take part in Fisher 2 now that she was a justice on the Supreme Court. Um, but essentially what you have there is in that four to three ruling, the Supreme Court decides that the University of Texas's uh, process is sufficiently holistic and not a quota system, that it is constitutional. But the key point there is that Justice Alito had a dissent where he argues that the system – he basically argues that the lower courts gave too much deference to the University of Texas in terms of the good faith that the university was supposedly using in crafting its system. And he noticed that the system discriminates against Asians. He argued that if you were applying it in a true race-neutral fashion, um, you would have more Asian students than you would otherwise. So the thinking goes that he was signaling to potential litigants uh, you know, bring me some cases where the Asians are discriminated against so we have a basis to end any kind of preferences in higher education. Um, so that's the state of the law as it exists today. So the question becomes, what do I think the impact is going to be? It's hard to say. You know, there is still a five justice majority, Breyer, Ginsburg, Sotomayor, Kagan and Kennedy that in several cases now has weighed in in favor of allowing universities to consider race as one factor among many until one of those five retires and gets replaced with someone more conservative. I don't see the current law changing that much, uh, but I could be wrong. The bigger issue is the total abandonment 
of trying to remedy the effects of past discrimination. The country just doesn't have the stomach for it, and there's no really cohesive people arguing uh, well that that needs to be brought back. You know, if you think about it, the Constitution got ratified in 1788. From 1788 until 1954 in Brown v. Board, segregation was totally legal in K-12 education and higher education. Then, from 1954 to 1971 with Swan v. Charlotte, segregation was illegal technically, but still allowed. It was still commonplace. So from 1788 to 1971, 183 years, you have this de jure by law segregation, and then you have this de facto by fact segregation. And then we decide that after just 28 years, that's enough to try and fix it before we stop. You know, they we have done basically less time than I've been alive. I'm 36 now. Uh, so they've used less than my full lifetime to try and remedy nearly two centuries of a system enshrined in law and in practice, deliberately designed to screw over all non-white people. And now we're in a position with the Supreme Court and with the law where the whites are coming back, basically. Um, so it's it's a very complex, messy uh, system. I do think we've got a little bit of stability until one of those five justices retires. So James, I appreciate the question. I hope that gives you an answer that you were looking for. Uh, next question came from a Twitter user via direct message. Not going to use his name, but he asks, quote, what's your opinion on the hashtag take a knee thing? Uh, these protests at the NFL football games where folks are kneeling during the national anthem. Uh, I don't, I don't have a problem with it. I mean, it's one, it's peaceful. You know, we keep talking about, oh, you, you got to have peaceful protests. You can't have any kind of violence. Never mind the fact that there was the Boston Tea Party where they were destroying private property back during the revolution. We'll leave all that aside. Uh, but it's peaceful. So you can't really ask for anything much more peaceful than just respectfully kneeling down during the national anthem. Uh, and then also it's about a legitimate problem. You know, we talk about police brutality every week. We talk about the fact that police don't pay attention to the Bill of Rights. They commit extrajudicial summary executions without due process and then are never held accountable for it. You know, that's what Colin Kaepernick started this all about. So that's all legit. My only problem, and it's a tiny problem, it's really not that big a deal, but I question whether or not that's still the purpose of the protests. You know, I'm disappointed that all the people that decided to kneel after President Trump said something, didn't have the balls or the spine to kneel beforehand. So that's kind of my only issue. Are we doing it because more people realize that police brutality is a problem, or are we doing it because we all hate President Trump and he called people sons of bitches? You know, that's that's my only question on that. So I think it's cool. I have more power to the people that are doing it. I have mad respect for Colin Kaepernick. I don't particularly care for him as a quarterback. I hate the 49ers, uh, but as far as his boldness and willingness to put himself out there for this, you know, it, it takes spine, man. I, I got to respect the hustle and I'm incredibly impressed by it. And he should be a, he should have a job in the NFL. His stats are good enough that he should be a quarterback somewhere. And the fact the league has blackballed him is ridiculous. And it's doubly ridiculous now that all these people are standing up to president Trump saying that he should be fired uh, when that's essentially what happened, you know, he didn't get picked up. He's not playing football anymore. So that's my uh, that's my take on that. 
So thank you for the question. Next one is from Rachel on Facebook. Uh, she says, quote, you post on your wall, you tweet, you podcast, uh, but there doesn't seem to be any method to the madness. What is your goal for hashtag Fisk? Um, the short answer to that is, I, you know, I don't really know. You know, keep in mind this whole idea that I have to have a goal uh, is new. I mean, me being Twitter famous is new. You know, if you look at it, I'll see if I can post it on the uh, on the Fiskum on Twitter feed so y'all can see it. If you look at this time two years ago, nobody gave the slightest fuck who I was. Didn't care. You know, I had roughly 900-ish followers. They were mostly friends from undergrad and law school. I would tweet as frequently as I do now, but I would get nothing back. I mean, I might get one like on a tweet. I might get one reply a day. Um and, and Twitter has analytics where you can track kind of your, your tweets, your mentions, your replies. And if you look at the graphs, it's comical because I'm sitting here tweeting and I'm, I'm not getting any response from anybody. Uh, and then a year ago, of course, we had the situation where we went viral a couple of times and that added a, a few thousand followers. I went from like less than a thousand to five thousand overnight. And now we're at like 26,000 and it's, it's weird. I mean, holy shit. You know, you look at, for example, um, the situation with the Durham monuments and the KKK rally that never happened. You know, I posted tweets about how I found out about that rally because I wanted to explain to folks, you know, my thought process based on the feedback that the sheriff had given the media saying that this was all based on a rumor, even though the rumors came from the sheriff's office. Well, then the next day I'm reading the paper and there's my tweet. Like it's something where someone actually took what I'd said online and put that into a news story. And that was just strange. Like, it's awesome. Don't get me wrong. I appreciate it. It's very cool, but it's a very foreign experience. You know, back in February, of 2016, when we first went viral with that case involving the kid and the donuts and trying to dodge the cat, uh, there wasn't a whole lot of media coverage of that. News and Observer, local here, paper here didn't pick it up. Herald Sun didn't pick it up. Um, you know, the folks that picked it up were people doing their own podcasts or uh, their own specialty focused publications. It was not a news story. So then now to see me in news is just very, it's very weird. I, I appreciate it. I think it's very cool, but it's very strange. So I haven't really kind of architected what my goals are. I guess what I would say is uh, if I were to divide it up into short-term, medium-term, long-term goals, um, and I would have to differentiate between like financial goals and, and policy goals, if you will. So like on the financial side, my short-term goal was not to lose money on doing it. You know, I wanted to put this together, but I didn't want to keep draining money for it. And I think we've we've hit that goal already. You know, I'm incredibly thankful for the folks on the Patreon page. They cover our hosting service. They cover me giving Mike a little bit of money to, to pay him for the hours that he gives us every month. Um, so that part's fine. In the medium term, I'd like to bring in more uh, so that we can expand it. I'd like to do it, you know, maybe twice a week so that the podcasts are all back to 30 minutes. Um, you know, if you look at, for example, Benjamin Dixon, uh, I remember back when he was just doing stuff on YouTube and now he's got a studio and it looks really slick and it's cool. Uh, he's a flaming liberal. We don't agree on much politically, but I respect what he's managed to build there. And I'd like to build something like that. I like to emulate what he does. You know what I mean? Um, on the policy side of it, in the short term, my objective was raising awareness. I'm astonished 
regularly at how many people don't realize how thoroughly fucked our criminal justice system is. It blows my mind. We go through K through 12 and we get our civics education and we're taught a bunch of stuff that in theory is great, makes sense. Uh, it's an ideal, but in practice it just doesn't fucking exist. It's terrible. you know. And, and I'll be honest, I didn't know that initially until I got into practice. You know, I'm one of those guys that had you talked to me years ago, I would have denied that racial profiling of drivers existed. I just didn't think it could happen because in my mind, I'm like, you're driving. How are you able to pick out, you know, races of drivers to target? There's no fucking way. Well, then you look at websites like opendatapolicing.com that they don't, they don't state an opinion. All they do is take every single traffic stop over the past 10 years, hundreds of thousands of them, and put that all into a table. And what you find is that not only is racial profiling common, it's a daily fucking occurrence, and it's really bad with particular officers. Like, you could find officers that are going out of their way to find black folks to pull over. It's astonishing to me. And then, so I see that. Now I see the problems are there. And then I'm representing these kids on a regular basis, dealing with drug charges and their lives are being potentially ruined or whatever else. It just blows my mind how many people don't see this as a problem. So my short-term goal was to raise awareness. We're working on that. Uh, we're not quite there yet. To my satisfaction, we do have 1,500 subscribers, which is phenomenal. I would like to, that to be 15,000 or more. You know what I mean? Um, but as kind of like a medium-term goal, I want the Fiscal Mall podcast to become a repository for these types of stories. I want it to be your source where the other media are covering these stories on an ad hoc basis based on things that happen in their particular locations. I want to funnel all of them here to this podcast so that you can come to us every week and see what's going on. You can check back episodes to see what's happened in the past and everything gets centralized here on a regular basis. And then my long-term policy goal is to reclaim conservatism. You know, I have been a Republican since before I could vote. That finally changed in 2016. I left the party when Donald Trump got elected because he's not a conservative. But we've allowed the philosophies of conservatism to get hijacked by these nativist, pro-big government people that just fucking worship at the feet of police. And it's disturbing to me, this notion that you pay someone taxpayer money, you give them a badge and a gun, and you let them do whatever the fuck they want with absolutely no consequences, that's not a conservative philosophy. How that has become one in practice uh, is, is just mind-blowing to me. So I would like for us to be an outpost, you know, to borrow William F. Buckley's uh, comment, standing athwart history yelling stop. You know, that type of approach, but dealing with this authoritarian impulse in conservatism in the Republican Party. I like this to help fix that. Uh, so those essentially are my goals, you know, not lose money, make enough for us to expand, uh, raise awareness about the problem, become a repository for all the stuff going on every week, and ultimately reclaim the ideological high ground for conservatism. So Rachel, thank you for the question. Uh, last one comes from James. It's another podcast question. He says, quote, and this is a different James, by the way. This is not James that asked the first question. Uh, James number two says, quote, I would like to start my own podcast. Can you give me some advice on what you use? So there's a lot of pieces to put together to do a podcast. 
uh, I have been blessed and that I have Mike and I can offshoot some of that to him and have him figure it out. But when I started, first thing, of course, you got to figure out what you're going to call it. Um, that was easy because I already had kind of the, the title in my head because I really truly do hate politics on both sides. Uh, and then you got to find good bumper music. And in that one, I was lucky because one of my classmates is a musician and he sent me to a website called beatstars.com. And that's where you got that fancy sax music that has the intro and outro. Um, so then as far as the mechanics of how we actually record, so the software we use uh, is GarageBand on Apple Mac OS. It, Mike's got a laptop that he records it and it's, it comes in in different uh, tracks. Uh, one track has the music, one track has my voice, one track has the clips, and then another track has like sound effects if we add those in. And I use for a microphone a Blue Yeti. So Blue is the brand, Yeti is the particular type of mic. Uh, it sits in front of me, it allows me to unhook it, and I can take it to places to do like the interview with uh, Jeff Neiman when we talked about jury stuff. Attached to that is a thing called a pop filter. It's basically, um, it, it, whenever you say words like, um, I'm trying to think of examples, well, pop, for example, the air that comes from your mouth creates a, a fuzzy effect on the microphone. The pop filter filters that out. So you attach that to the mic so that your sound sounds all right. Uh, you need a pair of over-the-ear headphones that tune everything out. So I've got a pair of Skull Candy headphones that attach to the little um, board in front of me. That allows Mike to tell me what he's doing back in the control room. And I can hear myself as I talk. And I can hear the music, anything else that's going on. So I know when I need to shut up, pause it, fix something, and kind of go from there. Um, so that's kind of the that's the process for recording. And we've got the the studio basically is, so Mike works for a company, not going to name who it is, but essentially they do um, advertisements. And one of their rooms for recording audio stuff is a it's, a, it's a sound room. I mean, it's basically a glorified office, but instead of walls, you have these really funky uh, foam things, like triangles pointing from the walls. And the way that apparently what that does is that stops any echoes, reverberations or any of that stuff. So like it's dead quiet in here when you take the headphones off. It's super creepy. Uh, But I'm told that it makes the audio sound good. So that's kind of our location. And then as far as actually getting your podcast out to the masses, uh, GarageBand allows you to export the um, episode as an MP3 file. We use Blueberry as our media host. So we upload that to them. We then have a WordPress installation. Uh, it's hosted by DreamHost, who's our website hosting provider. Uh, by the way, we got the URL through GoDaddy. You need that as well as a URL. So we go into our um, website. We use WordPress. We create a new post. I link that to the Blueberry media file. Blueberry's plugins create our RSS feed and everything else. They ship everything off to iTunes and Stitcher and Google Play and whoever. And whenever it publishes, you know, an hour or two later, it gets picked up by all of these other syndication services and the new apps and everything else. So that's essentially the mechanics for it. Uh, I hope that's helpful to get you started. As far as like cost goes, uh, your your website host is going to be like twelve to fifteen dollars a month. Blueberry, their hosting plans depend on how much time you take. Uh, so I think we're on like the hundred dollar a month plan at this point because we had a lot of episodes in August. Um, so that's going to be your main cost each month, and then your URL is like fifteen dollars a year, give or take that sort of thing. 
Uh, GarageBand is, I think, free with macOS. I don't actually remember. Uh, I've had my laptop for so long that I just don't actually know. And I know Mike does this for a living, so I haven't bothered to ask him. Uh, and the microphone, the blue Yeti mic was like 349 It's a lot of money, but it's a super high quality microphone and you will love it. So hope that gives you some insight, James. If you have any other questions, feel free to shoot me another message and we'll talk through it from there. So folks, we're at about 45 minutes. That's going to do it for this episode of What the Fisk. We will be back with our regular episodes next week. Uh, As always, thank you for tuning in. Please make sure to join the conversation on Twitter at Fiskamall. If you like what you're hearing, leave us a rating or a review on iTunes. And on behalf of myself and Mike the Sound Guy, I hope all of you have a blessed week. Thank you for listening.